Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Well, welcome over to Product. I'm back with part two with Brandon Chu from Shopify. So let's let's continue where we left off from last time, talking about you know some of the things you've written about before, and let's talk about shipping the whole customer experience. Are are you saying PMs need to be subject matter experts on the customer experience? What what are you saying when you say let's ship the whole customer experience? Yeah, uh, I think the the big takeaway with shipping the customer the whole customer experience is just you can't limit your thinking as a product manager in terms of what you're trying to build for customers to just the actual functional product. Like at the, if it's a software product, the moment, you know, they start interacting with your feature or log into your product, it has to be thought of much more holistically around like, what are all the different ways a customer interacts with the company and the product and not just the, the interface that you've built. So for example, like going all the way out to what you're doing in marketing and branding and on social, like what's the promise that was given to a prospective customer before they even signed up? Right. How, to, how does that flow through to the use of the actual product? And I think really critically for PMs, what does it mean when they run into trouble? What is the support experience? What's the experience of support outside of the product, like documentation? All these types of things are often like left to like the last minute just before something launches or whatnot. And it is often where customers spend most of their time, <laughs> like they're in the consideration phase, uh, dealing with like, oh, I can't figure out how to solve this thing. So I have to like go read the docs for an hour or I have to get on support and wait for email. And it takes like three days maybe to get a response and I'm completely blocked all the way. So, so that's like the really big message around it is like, you have to put yourself sort of humbly around the fact that your product is going to be imperfect. So it's the whole business around the product that is also going to create a lot of the value in the customer experience. Now, do you feel a lot of that has moved into the product? Like, you know, I mean, I'm a little biased. I work here at Pendo and I'm hearing, oh, you know, go to the manual or read something. I was like, oh, you should push all that help in context, right? And deliver it inside the product. Do you see a trend where that's moving? I mean, I feel like I do, but maybe I'm biased where a lot of that interaction, whether it's CS, whether it's training, whether it's learning, whether it's even just interactions with sales and upsells and purchasing has moved into the product experience itself. And that's brought in from, you know, this, this concept of just features now to, you know, a product experience, right? Exactly. Yeah. I think that that has been a trend over the last few decades. And, you know, if we go back to the history of some product management, I think that most of the reason why it was needed was just due to the technical complexity of a build itself. Uh, so really like requirements and scope gathering and stuff like that. But I think as software has become, frankly, easier to assemble, like it's easier to start a software company, build a business and get, you know, a slimmer features out, the demands on product managers and the breadth that they're actually bringing to the table in terms of value is, is changing and growing. Like, so it's much more around stewarding the entire customer experience and, and the business. Got it. Got it. So, you know, now when you're, when you're talking to PMs, how do you foster this skill set, this mindset, you know, and, and, and as part of that, it's, it's integrating this feedback into this process too. So how, how do they, how should they approach customer feedback to better ship a whole customer experience? 
I think a lot, like with almost anything, when I'm trying to develop PMs, it's just asking them questions. Like when they're building it, it's just like, oh, interesting. What's the, what's the market narrative that you want for this feature? Oh, who, uh, like, what's an experience going to be when a customer gets blocked at this part? Like where, where could they fail? Oh, have you worked with the finance team to figure out what happens when there's a, like a payment that gets upheld or something like that, right? It's just asking them questions outside of often what is brought and discussed, which is like, oh, the feature is going to work this way. We want this feature and not that feature. And, and so by just even asking the questions, it broadens their mindset about the expectations of, of how they should be thinking about what they're building. So that goes a really long way. And then other than that, it's, it's just giving them experiences. Like uh, at the last two companies I've been at, Shopify and last one was FreshBooks, we do make sure that PMs like spend some time in support. So at Shopify, it's like through onboarding, they jump on calls, uh, listen to customer calls throughout, and they can do that throughout their uh, career here. And there's a program called Bridging the Gap, which lets anyone just like pair with one of the support leads and folks uh, and, and just understand like, and they can actually zoom in on like calls that come in about just their product and they can just stay abreast of like what the experience is like. And at FreshBooks, even more drastically, doesn't matter what your level is. You could be like the CPO, but you're going to spend the first month of your career at FreshBooks in support on the phones. Uh, so it's just like, it's just things like that you build into the culture that enable people to A, learn about how the whole business works, but then B, remember that the whole thing is, is also their responsibility. Now, we talked earlier about building credibility and obviously product management, you know, working with support is one way they can build credibility with other parts of the organization, better understand the customer. Part of it too is building credibility with engineering and design, right? So yep. how do you help them build that skill of influencing those groups? Yeah, that's a really like, well, I think every PM goes through that, that arc and not just once in their career, every time they join a new team, because, you know, I think as we spoke to in the first one, like there is a, there's a non-obvious nature to what PMs do, right? So there's a bit of skepticism, I think, when they join a team that maybe hasn't worked with one. I like to frame it much more for PMs, less around like building influence, because I think that creates a wrong mentality of like, I need to get people to like me. I need to like figure out how to like, understand and potentially even worst case, like manipulate them psychologically. Like that's not what it's about. I think it comes through better when it's around the mentality of like provide value to the team and support the team. And I think when people have that mentality, like they listen more, they see where there is like work that is not happening that they can do on behalf of the team information that's missing for them to make decisions faster. And they can, go take that upon themselves and bring that to the team. So like you, you end up showing your value because you help the velocity of decision-making that's happening with the team. You help all the overhead and cruft around how the team is operating. And then I think it's just from that foundation that they first see that there's a reason you're here. And then after that, you can build on that foundation to actually show that potentially you have really great opinions. Uh, you know, if you have a strong engineering background, potentially like maybe you have really good opinions on, on engineering uh, similar with design. But I think like, don't start there. Like don't, don't try to build credibility with engineers by like riffing off a bunch of like architectural jargon that you like half know. That's a really bad idea because they can smell bullshit. Uh, so 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with you. You, yeah. you don't want to uh, you don't want to fake it till you make it in that way, right? Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about technical terms. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone digs in, and you're like, oh, I don't know that much. Yeah. And, and I think the flip side is actually just show when you don't know, and don't be afraid to ask to understand. Yeah, I, oh, like I don't understand the thing. Can you explain that to me? And I think that people will appreciate the, the thing is sure. Like they'll be like, oh, okay, I have to explain this thing, which maybe they think is basic, but you're at least building credibility in your honesty. Like, yeah, they know they can transparency. Trust you. You're not pretending to know something. You're being honest and transparent about what you do know. And as long as you're not, you know, asking the same thing multiple times, I think you're in good shape, right? Exactly. Yeah. So talk to me about, you know, it, it sounds like a very unique culture at Shopify. And it sounds like one that supports entrepreneurship. Like you, you talked about companies, you know, people coming out of Shopify and starting companies. Talk to me about how Shopify supports this entrepreneurial mindset. For sure. I think it starts with our customers, actually. I think that we spend a lot of time trying to build empathy with our customers during onboarding and just like the rhythm of the company sharing lots of stories about these businesses being built on Shopify. So it starts with the culture there. I think some a of lot, the... A lot of your customers are entrepreneurs, right? Oh, I'd say, yeah, like the majority actually will yeah. identify as such. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, we have like fairly large businesses on Shopify, but there is a really large contingent of folks who are doing side gigs or trying to start a, a, a really nascent business and are maybe still working full time with the goal of actually being able to quit and do it full time. Right. There's a lot of that on Shopify. So it's kind of infectious, I think, in, in, in our brand and in the customer stories that are told. The, the other thing we do is more directly, like we give everyone in Shopify unlimited access to use the product for free. So like you get unlimited stores and we actually probably have like 15, 20% of our employees that are trying to actually build functional real businesses on the platform. And that's really fun. Like I actually have my own store as well. And uh, what I've loved about it is that A, it's just always fun to build a business, but then B, it's something you carry with you throughout your career here where all the things you're building, you're able to use them for real. And I think that that is just such an incredible feedback loop for people in the company. It's, it's honestly one of the reasons why I think like Facebook's product grew so fast and was so nimble and also like, frankly, very good because everyone in the company could use Facebook every single day, right? So when you get that crazy feedback loop of like, you're using the thing that you're building, I think there's something that happens long-term over the product that is really, really big. Like that's sort of like how we instill it, I guess, across the whole company. And then otherwise, I think the other way we instill it culturally is like straight from Toby's mouth, he'll say in onboarding, the best way to leave Shopify is just go start a company. We're, we're about entrepreneurship. And if that's why you're leaving here, we're going to celebrate you out the door. And I think that, that that's a really important framing for people about, about what we value. Hmm. So I'm curious now, what, what does Brandon's store sell? Uh, so it's a weird story, but um, I sell mirrors. And specifically, I sell two-way mirrors, which are, think of like a police interrogation room where you can see through one side, yeah, but yeah. it reflects on the other. And the reason I sell those is, uh, I'm not sure if you ever heard of uh, smart mirrors. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so it's sort of like a do-it-yourself tech project where like you build this thing for your bathroom where it shows you, it reflects so you can use it in the morning, but it also shows you things like, you know, what your calendar is or what the traffic is that day using sort of a Raspberry Pi uh, in the background and some open source uh, software called like Magic Mirror. And I was trying to build one. And as I was trying to build one, I figured out all the software stuff and I started to build the frame. And okay, now I'm going to go, I got to get the actual mirror 
right? And I, I couldn't find one. I couldn't find one until I found this company I'm in Canada. I found a company in the US and for a little mirror like this, like literally this big, it was like $280 to get it to Canada. I was like, this is ridiculous. So in my past side businesses, I've like dealt with, with commerce stuff and sourcing manufacturing from like overseas and in China and stuff like that. So I just was like poking around and seeing like, where are the manufacturers for mirrors like this in the world? And I found some uh, in China and I basically said, you know what, just give me like a hundred of them. And they gave me a hundred. I started just posting it on like Reddit and forums of people making it. And it just started picking up people just started, they like, there was just a supply gap in the market. So they started buying these mirrors and it's funny. I never even ended up building the mirror, but instead I just ended up making a business that sold the mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny. I was, it was, when you said this big, that was like 12 inches, right? For yeah. yeah. <laughs> 180 bucks. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you what your mirror does, like what the functionality is behind it, but evidently you don't have one. So, uh, no. so all I do is I sell the mirror and then I, I uh, source or write content on like tutorials on how people can build them. So, and then I link to different other parts of the supplies that they need. So it becomes more like a how-to site with, yeah. with one product. And it's amazing. Like just uh, zero advertising at all. Just like people sharing it on forums of these communities and stuff like that. It's like doing like 40 K a year. Awesome. That's really cool. <laughs> uh, that's, that's pretty exciting. So are you ever going to build your mirror? Uh, not for a while, not for a while. <laughs> I'm pretty busy right now. And my rule with all of my side businesses, like I got to spend less than one hour a month on it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what it is right now. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, do you have, since we're talking about Shopify stores for a second here, do you have a, a favorite or two that uh, one of the employees of Shopify has done? There's a store that um, my uh, peer, his name is Daniel, built probably four or five years ago. It's called Bowling Cleaver. And it is actually a, a biltong. So it's like a South African like beef jerky. Yeah, uh, and he's, he has some heritage there. And so he really wanted to build a brand and great product around Biltong for the U.S. really, because it's just not as popular there as a form of snack or whatnot. And, uh, you know, without divulging, I'd say like his revenue or anything like that, like it's probably, I'm, I actually am speculating here because like we take privacy pretty seriously. So we don't actually go into people's stores, but like just offhand in conversations after four or five years, I think it's like, it is equivalent to his salary or, or maybe even more. Like, it's pretty interesting, like uh, the trajectory that some of these businesses have. And like, there are definitely folks in Shopify who make more from their store than they even do from the company, which is amazing and fascinating. Uh, but, but it's even more reinforcing around that point of like, we want that because those are real businesses. Those are the ones that have to grow, deal with. Because if you're just doing something where like you have one order a week or something, are you really replicating what one of our customers has to go through? No, because many of our customers are doing hundreds, sometimes thousands of orders a day. And that's a completely different level of scale and infrastructure that you need to run the business. So, you know, we, we celebrate it, even though it's uh, kind of wonky. That's, that's still awesome. That's yeah. pretty cool. I'm going to have to check that out too. I'm a big beef jerky fan. So oh, okay, cool. A fun yeah. thing to, uh, Daniel, I want, uh, I want some affiliate referral money or something. <laughs> Brandon, send me here. Yeah. <laughs> Buy one, get one for Brandon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll take it. So now you're managing a group of PMs. How, how big, remind us how big the group is today? 
So the PM org that I manage is probably about 14 today. And that's in my group because uh, I'm actually a GM. So I actually manage cross-functionally, which is kind of interesting. So uh, I, all of engineering, design, the business side, like business development operations, that all rolls up to me too. So the whole group is about 200 people. The PM org within that's about 14. And then the PM org in all of Shopify across other business units uh, combined is around 140 right now. Okay. And just to be clear, you, you don't own the whole PM group then? No, I don't own the whole PM group at Shopify. Craig Miller is our CPO. Yep. And the way Shopify is really broken up is into basically business units, which we call product lines. And there are all the functional areas roll up into a GM and there's about eight of them in Shopify. Awesome. So talk to me about how you manage PMs, how, how you work to evaluate skill sets, how you build that that piece of your organization in a way that gives you the, the coverage of skills you need. Yeah, I think my goal always with PMs, at least from an organizational output and scaling perspective, is like they're there to lead an entire area and trajectory of the product. So like I really don't like hiring PMs as glorified project managers. I need them to... I mean, they, they have to have really good execution muscle and, and build trust with the team, but it's really about like, you're placing a bet on a PM in an area because they're going to supposed to establish a vision for what it's supposed to become over the long run. And, and, and that's like the meta of how I think about PM. So when it comes to background and skills I'm looking for, it is people that have, you know, really good leadership capabilities and teamwork skills have enough breadth uh, within the domains that are relevant. So I lead uh, the developer platform. So I do have a very high ratio of like engineering, software engineering background, uh, PMs in the group. And then the third is I think they need to really have an entrepreneurial muscle and an ability to take some risk. Because I think that we need over the long run people that are willing to put themselves on the line a little bit, not in the sense of like they're going to get fired if they fail, but rather like they're willing to put their ideas on the line and go into a direction that isn't bulletproof, right? I think that there's a lot of incrementalism that can happen in product management where you're just trying to optimize the funnel basically over and over again and do the, do the next feature as defined by how many support tickets like you know, your customers have that are tagged X, Y. And I think that there is a huge place for that, but it's always going to make you hit like some local maximum of impact. So I think that have people that have a vision and some entrepreneurial grit to sort of say like, okay, we've sort of hit the 80, 20 of like the obvious things to iterate on with the product. And now like we need to go there and there is something that is a different thing to sort of justify to your stakeholders and your team, because when it's an incremental thing, you can build a really simple business case or ROI uh, analysis showing like, you know, we'll do this over a few weeks and it'll do that. And everyone's like, great. We didn't even need this meeting. That's amazing. Thank you. But when it's more of like, we want to become this, then it sort of gets into this world of like, you have to tell a great narrative. You have to really understand the long-term vision of the company. And you have to make an argument around the qualitative aspects of what you're trying to do for the company through that product area versus just potentially like the metrics. And, and that's a different skill set, I think. And the last thing I'll say is like everything that's just described, that, that sounds like a very, very high bar. It's not, you know, 
something that everyone needs to have out of the gate, but it's more like the types of skills that we try to build up as PMs progress to different levels uh, in the organization. Uh, and you feel feel like you're building that like a, mo- like a mosaic or a tapestry where you're having some people that are stronger in different areas and some people that may be weaker, but you're looking at kind of the, the average, so to speak, or filling out kind of your, your needs? Yeah, I think like we, we try to look at it probably in two intersections. One is like, what's the team composition? So if there's a group of like three PMs who are all in the same area, is there a mix of enough people to get us that cumulative outcome? And then the other thing is how do we organize that around what's naturally, what would naturally make sense around how we would break up the product? Because I think that's one of the challenges of PMs is like, you do need to find some definition of how to break up the product into component areas or whatnot, because PMs really crave that ownership and the ability to drive an area. And so when they're like falling all over each other, because, you know, everyone owns everything, it's just not a great experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. What, what skill sets do you think are hardest to find in your PMs? I'd say hardest to find is, is actually like not in a, in a microcosm, but over the long run, people that can really keep up that leadership, authenticity and energy. I think that like, like that is something so intangible about great PMs that often makes the difference. It's like the energy that they bring to the team and to the company every single day as like the people that are really responsible for saying like, we're going over there and it's great, right? And it's going to be hard, but like as a team, we can do this. Like those things are, are very intangible and they don't, and they're not, you know, to be clear, like they're not contained to only PMs. I think people could have those values and and those skills from any function. But I do think that for the best PMs, they do exude a lot of that. Because at the end of the day, it is is ideas, direction, and leadership. And and that comes down to motivating people. You know, so so that is why, like, as good as, like, the foundational skills a PM can have, I think that it's that little extra intangibleness that's going to make people good to great. So let's talk about data metrics and benchmarks. What metrics should product managers own? That's a deep question. I think uh, I feel like we could spend a long time there, but yeah, yeah. I think I mean uh, the simplest way is just like whatever represents the output that you're trying to see from the product area, and at whatever fidelity enables you to understand the mechanics, the unit economics, or the mechanics of that product. Right. So if you know like you want to increase revenue, then okay, what's the next highest leverage lever that is a leading indicator for growing revenue. Let's say it's, you know, number of like ads that are created if you have an ad platform and then deeper, it's like, okay, how does that relate to how many people are doing searches or other engagement metrics? So it's sort of like make sure it ladders up to the output that the company is really looking for and then make a judgment call on how deep you need to go in terms of like all the machinations that lead up to it to be helpful for you in, and your team in iterating. I think that's probably like how I would describe it in abstract. And how, when you're looking at evaluating PMs, like how do you look at benchmarking PMs against each other? It's very, that's a very nuanced question. I think like, so my philosophy on everything is sort of like, I'm going to judge a PM on the decisions that they make with the context that was available at the time. So there is an element of like looking at performance on the product when comparing PMs. But I also think that we have to remember a lot of things, especially when it comes to performance and software, they, they actually only manifest over pretty long time periods. Like a PM could join an area, it grows 100% that year, 
but maybe that was some of the changes that were made the month before that they grew, or maybe there was a change in the the funnel where like marketing really figured out how to target the right people that fit that feature. So I don't want to ever draw too much causation, right? Instead, I want to really dive deep with the PM to understand like the big decisions that you made in this year. Like how did you synthesize the information that was needed to make that decision? How did you break down the different options? And then what were the really strong reasons to make the decision that you wanted? And I think like literally just through that, I get a better assessment of like, what's the repeatable success of this PM in the long run. And so, so that's really what, like a, a lot of actually how I, I would break down comparing PMs. It's like how well they're able to do that. And then, you know, if they stay in an area for years, then I can start to assess the performance impact of that. And, and then the other side is really going to be how all their peers and stakeholders view them. Again, you know, the limited, like I was saying before, your ability to inspire and lead is going to be an important part of your trajectory as a PM. So it's what others think of you, uh, not in like a popularity contest way, but just in a respect way that is vital for a PM in the long run. So those, those are the big dimensions that I look for when I, when I compare across. So that's interesting. So now like looking at data and what interests you, if you were an investor, what would you be looking for? Just like uh, investing in, in companies in general? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I do some angel investing for the last like few years. Uh, what I typically look for, it depends on the stage, I guess, of the company. So really early, you're really just betting on the founder. And I wouldn't even say the idea. I mean, like there should be some chance that that idea makes sense to you as an investor, but really like what is the caliber of the founder? Are they able to build the team? Do they have grit? I think like it's really a gamble and a bet. Further along though, uh, it's, it's looking at like very simple binary things for me. Like, are people paying for this? Like are strangers paying for this? Like not, not your friend or, or anyone related to you at all, but are people seeing value in the thing enough and willing to pay for it? So like revenue or not from strangers is like a kind of binary thing for me often when I look even at like seed level. And then as it goes and progresses to more mature businesses of which that's when I actually stop investing because I'm not really, it's not really for angel investors, but it's, it's looking at like, is the, is the market big enough? Is there some strong sense of unit mechanics uh, or unit economics rather for this business? And has the team figured out some sort of like unique secret around the market or how their product fits in it or what customers want that you can really build some long-term value on top of. Because I think that like today with A, there's a lot of money flying around, right? So people like founders can get capital, especially if they're super compelling or they have some sort of pedigree. Like I think if you just, if you're like a PM at Facebook, you could just raise $2 million. That's it, just based on that, <laughs> right? And, and that's kind of awesome in one sense, but also really dangerous as an investor. So I think like, people can kind of brute force their way to some sort of even revenue lines by like basically funneling all that money into like, like ads and brand marketing and things like that and, and giving like deep discounts on things. Like we see that with a lot of food delivery startups, like they're able to grow, right. But they're doing it by frankly burning lots and lots of cash. So that's where the unit economics really come in and, and sort of this idea of like what is super unique to the business. Anyway, those are the types of like really broad things I think about but there's so much detail, I think, in it. every company is different. Every person's different. Yeah. So let's wrap up by going back to product. You know, what, what trends do you see? You know, what trends excite you in the product community? Like, what do you see changing these days? 
Wow, that's a, I, I, it's a, such a weird, it's still weird. It's a, it's a product is always just this evolving thing. And the reason I think is because it's always by definition going to be the inverse of what everyone else is. <laughs> so if, I'll give an example, like if designers and engineers on mass, let's say, really start building up incredibly strong, let's say project management skills, team project management skills then over time, PMs become potentially redundant having that skill, right? So we're always sort of like in accounting, like a word is like the plug, which is like the value to make it all match. <laughs> and, and PMs are often like, I, I view the discipline as an evolving thing that is the plug. So as like the skills of the team around you uh, expand and change, you're really trying to change what you do to optimize, again, your, those first principles, which is your ability to achieve the mission. So what I see today happening much more is that like PMs are expected to have a stronger opinion on the user experience and probably even less of an opinion technically than they had in the past. I think that's you know, uh, an evolution of the earliest of PMs or, or jobs like that coming from like the semiconductor industry and like super high technical areas. And it's moving more towards like, or it is already there. I shouldn't say moving towards just like the user experience is the competitive advantage for a lot of companies. And then I think PMs as uh, where it's going is like PMs as purely like leadership and entrepreneurship. I think that the tooling and the general sophistication of the populace to understand how to build things and basic like lean methodology and things like that. I think that engineers, data scientists, designers, they're all actually gonna like just be incredible product teams that are able to iterate and, and have really good judgment around what to build on an execution or iterative basis. And then PMs are really there for like, like hiring in bets, hiring in leadership, hiring in accountability. If you ask any like CEO of like what's one, I think like unique thing that a PM represents in your organization, it's probably always going to be accountability, right? It's someone that you could say like, well, we can't afford consensus decision-making when we have to invest a team over a year, like who's responsible for that decision and accountable. And I think that a PM is always going to play a role just being that. So let's wrap this up. This has been awesome. But let's talk about you a little bit. What's your favorite product? Oh, my favorite product. Honestly, my favorite product over the years has always just been Pocket. Do you know Pocket? No, I don't think I do. It's, it's like the simplest product where it's just like you store links of articles to read later. It used to be called like read it later. And then they rebranded it to Pocket. And it's the simplest thing in the world, but I find I use it 10 times a day for like a decade now. And it's just like, I'm reading something and there's a really nice article share or whatnot, but like I'm doing something else or I'm at work and I can't sit 20 minutes doing it. And I just can save this thing of like this article or this piece of writing to this repository, which is like things I want to read later. And to be frank, I only end up reading 10% of the things I even save. But what I think is super fascinating about it is it create, it's much better than like how like Facebook's newsfeed, for example, infers what you find interesting because uh, I always find newsfeed products like they over index on like recency and like a few things where you're, you're just going to see the same stuff over and over again. It's like an echo chamber problem. Whereas with Pocket, it really is taking in all these diverse things that you're interested in 
and it, it gives me the actual best content list that exists, I think, in, in my sphere of, of anything that's recommending anything to me. And, you know, it's a very simple product, but it also like it integrates, it literally is just a Chrome extension. And then it integrates into e-readers. So like Kindles and uh, in Canada, Kobo and whatnot, where like the other thing is like, I just want to stop looking at screens when I go home. So I can look at an e-reader and I can read that article seamlessly that I saw at noon at night on something that's easier on my eyes. So I just love it because it's like, it's in the background and it accumulates long-term value for me. And it just like allows me to live a better lifestyle in terms of how I consume content. So that's it. I'll have to check that out. I like it, especially if it does a good job with the personalization. It's it's funny that you you say, I want to get away from screens and you're reading on a Kindle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nicer screen for reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Something about the blue light. I'm sure this is all relative. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) So uh, one one final question for you today. Uh, Three words to describe yourself. Competitive, lazy, and uh, risk. You know, it's funny you pick competitive and lazy together uh, because I think a lot of them would probably think of those as like, opposites well not polar opposites but on opposite ends of the spectrum but i've actually found that they're not right because when (laughs) there's a there's a value to the laziness in competitive environments it's like you try to like automate away the stuff you don't want to do right exactly it's just like laziness is also a proxy for just efficiency in a a way but it just but it just sounds better and it describes why I was the way I was when I was a kid. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. That's great. Uh, Well, thank you very much. This has been awesome. Thank you very much. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.